Welcome to the Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters podcast. Here you will find a safe space to learn and grow with leaders in education, disability studies, disability advocacy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations. Specifically, we look at how disability fits into diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how to frame disability awareness in the context of educating K-12 through communities. This podcast serves educators, parents, and community members who strive to learn and or teach about disability in a research-based and respectful way. Moving beyond simple awareness and diving into inclusive and socially responsive conversations. Thank you for joining us today. Now let's go Beyond Awareness. Hello and welcome back to Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters. I want to especially welcome our guest, Dr. Sara Acevedo. I am a big fan of Dr. Acevedo. Not only is she an extraordinary teacher and activist, she also has been such a support for my work via her students, many of whom have helped me with my Beyond Awareness work and with putting together this podcast. So Sara, welcome. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you? How do you identify? What do you do? And what, you're, what are you passionate about? Thank you so much, Diana, for having me in your podcast. It's a pleasure to uh, join you today. Uh, we've been working together for a while, but this is the first time we actually meet virtually because we're far away from each other. I am in um, Cincinnati. I teach at Miami University in the Disability Studies program. I'm assistant professor in the program, in the minor. I don't, it's, it's always difficult for me to, <laughs> to introduce myself because, you know, uh, positioning oneself is always difficult depending, uh, and it depends on context. Um, but I, I always begin by saying that I am a mestiza. I was born and raised in Colombia. And I also always say that I'm autistic, uh, proudly autistic, which is saying that I am proudly autistic incurs a lot of privilege. There are a lot of people who cannot say that they're proudly autistic in remain safe, um, preserve their physical, emotional, and psychological, spiritual integrity. I have a letter of privilege. I pass or can pass as white until I open my mouth and start speaking. Then uh, things change. And I can, um, of course, use that privilege to open up spaces where I have access to which other people don't have access to open uh, these spaces up for people to share their own voices and their own stories and their own initiatives and struggles for liberation. So it is a pathway. Um, I don't speak for anybody. I bring the stories that are told by disabled people themselves. And I'm, and I'm honored to do so in collaboration with disabled activists and practitioners on the ground. So I, I, I am a uh, scholar activist. This is kind of 
the best way that I can identify to speak of my work at the borderlands, speaking, um, you know, mentioning Gloria Saldua and speaking of, uh, you know, also Patricia Hill Collins and threading those, those borders, um, the borders of the academy and the borders of practitioner communities and struggling for, for collective liberation. So I thread both worlds. I don't quite belong in either of them, right? When I'm on the ground, which organizing with, with fellow um, disabled activists, especially um, with disability justice activists, I still occupy this researcher persona, right? I still have that privilege that doesn't go away because I'm organizing with disability justice activists. It, that doesn't disappear. And when I'm, uh, you know, within the institution, I, I don't quite belong in there because I, I occupy this spaces where my identities are often erased, where my work is often rendered invisible. So it is an interesting position, you know, this space of liminality with where a lot of things can happen. There's a lot of possibility and there's also a lot of uncertainty and those spaces aren't difficult to navigate. Aren't, sorry, aren't easy to navigate. Um, so I guess that's a very, very long answer to your question. <laughs> well, thank you, Sada. I think it gives our listeners a pretty clear idea of who you are and what you're passionate about. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So as you know, this podcast is merely geared toward educators and families who have an interest in diversity, equity, inclusion, access work, and disability awareness, kind of mm -hmm. a key word, but they want to understand more about what is appropriate and what isn't. And so I like to use a disability studies and education framework to help ground people. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of basic discussion in education about what the right language to use is. Mm -hmm. Should we be using person first or should we be using identity first? What's most respectful? Mm -hmm. I would love if you could just give us your thoughts on this. What is the evolution of language as it correlates to disability history and current movements? Of course. And, and this is something that is a topic that's recurrent in class with my students. It's something that I always teach is something that always comes up. You know, I teach uh, disability allies and activists, which is the course that, that you and I have collaborated on and where my students, you know, support different activist projects and scholarly activist projects. And language is always um, a topic of interest. And I teach students in the applied professions. And so they come with uh, certain ideas in certain vocabularies and uh, of course, terminology from their own disciplines of study. And it is part of our history, right? As Simmel Linton has so eloquently shared with us through her work and especially claiming disability knowledge and identity and how we have struggled, right, over this battle over meaning, disabled people and applied professionals and professionals in general, struggling over who has the power to name and who has the power to name disability. Um, and because our histories, you know, have been both of oppression and of resistance to oppression, 
the way in which we are represented and thus treated has always been a, a political matter. And you know, when identities are contested, they're always political. So it's it's been difficult to change perceptions of disability that are filtered through the expert persona, the expert lens. And there has always been an idea and an understanding of disability as something negative, as something that must be either removed or cured or prostheticized or hidden or otherwise eliminated, right? In the worst, um, most nefarious cases. So associating disability with a human, it has been seen through professional lenses as dehumanizing. So removing the language of disability from a person has been a goal, right? As observed through that lens, because the histories of disability have been associated with dehumanizing spaces, such as poor almshouses and poor poor houses and asylums and spaces um, that were supposed to, um, quote unquote, serve as quote unquote rehabilitation spaces that then turn into spaces where disabled people were stripped of their humanity and neglected and abused. This idea of reclaiming humanity and reclaiming personhood is really still something that resonates with professionals very strongly. And and this has a lot to do with the fact that our struggles for our activism, our resistance, our cultural production, um, the ways in which we live our lives joyfully and uh, understanding disability as culture are permanently erased. So our lives are constantly seen through this tragedy, you know, tragic lens and still completely associated to histories of dehumanization that then it becomes that disabled people cannot be associated with disability. And so the person first language, for example, Sada has autism because I'm an autistic person is something that professionals will often tell families to use and others to use because you have to see the person first, right? Rather than their disability. And this is an idea that understands disability again as a deficit, as a lack, right? As something to strip away. Activists in the 60s, and of course, times leading to the, the struggles of the 60s in the heels of other civil rights um, struggles were reclaiming this humanity, right? We're reclaiming humanity. That was the time where the, the institutionalization was, uh, you know, still a, a fresh occurrence coming out of the 50s and people were still reclaiming their identity as human beings. So person first language was important at that time where our humanity was not being recognized. We were still fighting for basic rights, civil rights, right? So I write in a piece that I have about person first language and identity first language that language use is a matter of history and it cannot be decontextualized. And so debating language outside of context has that problem, 
And so saying that you have to use person first language because you have to put the person first doesn't really contextualize our history, doesn't really speak to disability history, and in that sense doesn't really speak to our own agency and autonomy to decide what language suits us better. And it is, of course, a theme and a topic that we don't all agree with. We all have very different perspectives. We are not a one disability community. We are many disability communities. And we don't, uh, contrary to what people would think, we don't all know each other. Uh, <laughs> we don't all share the same ideas. And um, we have polarizing understandings of things. And that's just part of who we are, you know? And I've always thought and said that that actually breaks the powers or the structures that would want disability to be a monolith. We aren't monolithic. So I love that we are so different and that we think so differently about language because that really defeats that impulse to want to assimilate us to one another because that makes it easier also to control us. So at that time, person-first language was really important. Then, you know, with, with the perspective of, and that's, sorry, that, that is also very much associated with the dominance of the medical model of disability that is still prevalent, of course, but at the time, right, associating disability with a lack of humanity or quote-unquote subhumanity had a lot to do with scientific and medical ideas of embodiment. So the medical model thinks of disability as an individual lack, incapacity, deficit, for which only the individual is responsible. And so it is, in other words, inherent to the individual. And this is, of course, a very deterministic understanding of disability. On the other hand, there is the social perspective of disability, which was first called the social perspective of disability by activists in the 80s, Vic Finkelstein and others associated with the British disability rights movement, who spoke about this social perspective of disability, which then turned the lens on the focus onto the institutions, social practices, and interactions that were disabling. And so the focus turned onto a process, a process that they called a process of disablement. So disabling institutions, disabling interactions, disabling policies, disabling environments. So then this perspective was the social perspective that UPIS called it, was then, you know, uh, turned fancy by disabled sociologists, Colin Barnes and uh, Mike Oliver and other people after them. But this whole idea was discussed as a process as opposed to an inherent individual flaw. It was explained in terms of a social process, a social process of disablement. So focusing on that understanding, activists started thinking about language in a different way. The autistic movement of the 90s in the United States took on the social model of disability, which was first a social perspective, uh, became a fancy term through scholarship, the social model of disability as an analytic, and took that perspective to say, we are not flawed, 
we are not deficient. We don't lack. We simply are not. This world was not made for us. The world as it is, is disabling to us. So in that sense, the movement adopted identity first language because it was pointing specifically to the structures, social practices, policies, and interactions that disable different ways of being in the world that were disabling, if that makes sense, uh, and excluded and stigmatized and medicalized and pathologized other ways of being in the world. And then those forms of being in the world became an identity, an affinity group, people struggling for recognition, not only recognition because that stays within a rights framework, but for liberation, for a right to tell our own stories, narrate our own histories, you know, and all just different ways of representing ourselves and reclaiming our own cultural spaces from the hands of professionals and often parents because parents have been informed by professionals and siblings. And siblings, yeah. There is an excellent book that is called Sometimes Allies. I'm, I, I'm not remembering the whole book, but it's by Alison Carey, Pamela Block, and Richard Scott. And it's an excellent book that talks about these issues. And they're all siblings. And talking about these obstacles that parents and siblings and allies can sometimes represent for disabled people who are still reclaiming our voices and are dealing with this process of mediation. I always speak about this mediation that we have to navigate our relationships, our ways of being, our autonomy, our right to decisions that involve our bodies, so bodily autonomy. It, we always have to kind of wrestle from our supporters, our siblings, our guardians, our parents, our friends, our allies. And obviously the context again is important because these are people who fight with the best intentions for us, but not with us. And that is a big difference between a rights framework, we'll fight for you, we will advocate for you, and a disability justice framework, which is focused on collaboration, solidarity, reciprocity, and horizontal organizing. So basically not a top-down model, but actually a bottom-up grassroots, like Leah Lashmi Piepsna Samarasinha speaks of care networks that are created within the community and soar and thrive in the community. So there is no need or desire to negotiate with government. Oh, please recognize me as a human and grant me rights, if that makes sense. But it is actually a communal effort of caring for one another, of knowing each other's humanity at play. Right. So a rights framework focuses on legislation, policy, reform, and it has to do with this negotiation with state, whereas disability justice is a framework for liberation that is not a single issue politics because it doesn't only focus on disability, which rights frameworks do focus on one single issue, the rights 
of disabled people, whereas disability justice focuses on the justice for disabled people living at the intersection of other oppressed identities along the lines of race, class, sexuality, gender identity, gender expression, citizenship status, religious affiliation, so on and so forth. And the principles are primarily rooted in anti-capitalism, decolonization, uh, fight against white supremacy. It's just these sustainability and the leadership of the most impacted by these systems. And these movements themselves, like these various disability justice initiatives are led and created by disabled people of color living at the intersection of other marginalized identities. So disabled BIPOC. And Sins Invalid is, are the forerunners of disability justice. Sins Invalid is a troupe of performance artists of color who center gender nonconforming experiences. And they're wonderful. They're based in Berkeley. Well, they're mostly now spread out, but Patty Byrne, Leroy Moore, Leah Lakshmi Pipsna, Samara Singha, Eli Claire, Mia Mingus. Alice Wong is not part of Sins Invalid, but a collaborator with the Disability Visibility Project and many other people who really have contributed to the growth of a movement that focuses on community collaboration and really focusing on cultivating solidarity, mutuality, reciprocity, and care for one another in ways that state and government do not care for us. Yeah. Oh, wow. Sara, thank you so much for really encapsulating how the language and the mindset, the framing of disability all connects to the disability rights movement, our history, culturally and politically are so ingrained with how we phrase, I mean, just the basic, how we speak about disability, what we say, and also educating us about what is at the helm of the disability justice movement. And, you know, disability rights are important, right? And we've, we've, those are a foundation. We didn't have those. And that's so extraordinary that because people did connect and people of diverse disability experiences came together for that fight. And now there is this, okay, let's look at how equitable disability rights have been to the most marginalized intersections of our community, Mm -hmm. Um, how oppression is more heavily impacting on certain communities than others, and how can we work together? And I also thank you for letting our audience know about Sins Invalid, which is at the foundation of the disability justice movement. And we did have Leroy Moore on here. Well, that's great. Yeah, he's a wonderful friend and activist as well. Yeah, I apologize first because I was not very clear when I spoke of the social model of disability. It's always a difficult transition to explain because there's a lot of economic analysis there that I'm not going to get into. And so I get a little tripped up when I talk about it because I'm living a whole 
part of it out <laughs> so that I can explain it in terms that are more simple. So I apologize for that. And also, yes, disability rights, you know, the 504 sit-ins was a whole example of cross-disability collaboration, as well as cross-movement solidarity. The Black Panthers were instrumental to the survival of protesters who were occupying the building, uh, the Capitol, for 27 days, 28 days. They're bringing food. They were providing childcare. They were trying to get essential medication and things that were important or essential for the survival of the protesters. So it's difficult to speak of the disability rights movement as something that wasn't it, right? That wasn't encompassing of all of the different aspects of the disability experience. And it's important to discuss that it was an opening to disability politics and that disability politics has evolved and that these two movements are different. One doesn't emerge out of the other. One doesn't follow the other. They're just different trajectories, and they have both contributed enormously to disability politics. And yeah, so I just want to explain that, but there's the big difference between the two, and it's important to recognize that. Thank you. All right. One last question. What's the most important thing from your heart that you would want to say to educators and families to make a difference in alignment with allyship? Okay, uh, I'll respond to that question with an anecdote. The other day I was having a conversation with someone and they said, well, how does autism manifest for you? Because I have a cousin with autism. And I said, you mean you have a cousin who's autistic? And they said, oh, but I have a uh, friend, I think it was, who's a music therapist. And she said that we should always use person-first language when addressing disabled people, and especially when referring to autism. And I said, well, <laughs> and this is just an occurrence. You know, it's so typical and so common for me that it's exhausting. And we are at a time where we have been present for a long time now. We have been vocal. We have so much material out there that can be accessed by non-disabled people that what I would say is it is time, it is high time to engage with disability lived experience, with first-person narrative with our own way of identifying ourselves, because it is out there. We have put work into this. So it is late for professionals to still hold on to their own beliefs and understandings of disability. It's late for that. So I'm still shocked that I have students who come to my class and say, yes, because we are taught that in speech pathology or social work or psychology, that we have to address our special education, that we have to address disabled people. No, it's late for that. So I think that meeting each other at the middle, it seems to me that disabled people have always had to meet others where they are. There's nobody meeting us where we are. So let's meet in the middle and have a conversation about what we want for ourselves. Because if it is about us, because there's a lot of talk about helping, which is problematic in itself, because it's not about solidarity. 
It's not about liberation. It's about helping. And helping is problematic because it is not a matter of equity. Uh, it's not a matter of working together to solve a problem. And it is not the problem of disability. It's actually the problem of inaccessibility and the problem of oppression. Until then, we will not have any kind of equal footing until we do not become partners in the struggle as opposed to the ones who are helped then there will be no solution with which we are happy. No, there, there will not be. So what I want to leave parents and educators with is please learn from us. There's a wealth of information and materials out there. Learn from us. And learning from us entails understanding disability as legitimate and understanding disability, disabled knowledge production as legitimate. And Angela Davis has said it, referring to abolition. If we do not engage with knowledge production with incarcerated people, then there is nothing that we can do to actually solve the problem of mass incarceration and disproportionate incarceration of people of minoritized identities, because that is the knowledge that should be centered. If the intention is liberation. If the intention is to help and reproduce power. Yeah. Who's in charge, right? Who's in yeah. charge? If that's the intention, but it's guised under the idea of poor people, we want to help them, then that's a different story. But if the idea really is to find justice and liberation, then that's what needs to happen. Disabled knowledge and disabled leadership and disabled epistemologies, ways of knowing need to be at the center. So that's what I want to leave educators with. The materials are there. Disability studies is a really vast, rich discipline. And for parents, there's so much materials authored by disabled activists, so many blogs, so many podcasts, just like this one, so many other podcasts, just a wealth to engage with. Sada, I want to respect your time. Yes, I, got, I just got excited. <laughs> I know. I'm, I do want to ask you one more question, but I can only do it with your permission. Yes, yes, please go ahead. Just a follow-up. Okay. Yes. So, Sada, I can hear people's thinking right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a special education teacher. Mm -hmm. I have five students on the autism spectrum in my classroom, none mm -hmm. of whom can speak uh -huh. with words, you know, language. How does this apply to my students? You know, yep. I just want to make sure that people can contextualize everything you say, you know, yep. as a past special education teacher, as a general education teacher whose focus is on inclusion and who's an advocate and activist for my brother who is autistic and who gives me consent who has communicated with me and who I always make clear that we work together. Yeah. Um, but there was a long time in his life where he did not have a voice. Yeah. And so people were helping him or in their minds, they were helping him. And I so want my listeners to understand that even in the context of a special ed classroom or in the context of a disempowered student, what have you not provided access to, to have language and choice and self-determination be a reality in their lives? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of took over, but I want to hear what you have to say about that. 
So what I have to say about that is I will decenter myself because I am not a speaking autistic. So I have no right to speak for non-speaking autistic. However, there are non-speaking autistics, several of them who are activists and who are very active in using their way of conveying about what it means to be a non-speaking autistic in an oralist world what it means to be disempowered because the world that we currently live in only values oralism because there is a conflation between non-speaking or minimally speaking and non-thinking or non-present or non, right? Yeah. And non-human. And non-humans or subhuman. So I encourage people to engage with that work because that work is so valuable. You have Adam Wolfen, who's a poet, working close in Thai collaboration with his mom, Estee Clark, and they produce amazing artistic work. Yes. You have uh, DJ Savaris, who does excellent work. He co-director at a film called DJ. You have Emma Starkerlong, who has also a film there's a lot of work by non-speaking autistics and it's just so important to engage with yeah. people who represent a specific yeah. constituency. So yeah. I am not, I have tons of privilege because I'm a speaking autistic. I can speak to experiences of someone who was diagnosed late in life, who flew under the radar and who didn't get access to many things that I really could have benefited from, but also I was not subjected to abusive treatments. If I would have been diagnosed in the 80s, I surely would have. So, you know, I can speak only to my lived experience. So to special educators who are working with non-speaking or minimally speaking autistics, going to the source. For everybody, just going to the source is what I can say, because we're there. Yeah, presume yeah. that competence, presume competence presume and provide access. Always, because people say, you know, well, this is a child and they don't have agency or consent. It's, they're not in a consenting age. Well, an autistic adult is going to know more than a non-autistic adult about your child. So seek an autistic adult because we exist, right? We do grow up. Not all autistic people are children, right? Which is the stereotype. It's like we disappear into the ether. And for every other disability is the same thing. So this is what I have to say about that, that the sources are other disabled people. Thank you Sorry. so much. Sada, we appreciate your perfectionism, your <laughs> thoroughness and your elaborate way of sharing what's real in the world and your advocacy and your activism. And thank you so much for taking time to share with us. We really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I also am a very abstract person. I thrive in theoretical stuff. I'm really not great at everyday life. So I do have my, you know, focus and interest is really on that kind of heavy theoretical stuff. Um, so if I said words that were a little bit too intense, I can certainly provide a little more definition for them in writing if you need them. I'll be looking up several of your words. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love it. Hey, uh, where can people find you if they do want to find your work? It's kind of spread out. Um, okay. If you Google uh, my name and last name plus disability or plus autism or plus neurodiversity, there are several podcasts out there and some blogs and some articles and some stuff. And they can also email me and I can give you that email to put it out with the episode. I can okay. put it in the, in the show notes. Great. Okay. Thank okay. you again, Sada. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Beyond Awareness, Disability Awareness That Matters. If this was helpful to you, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow me, Diana, on Instagram at Diana Pastora Carson and on Facebook at facebook.com slash gobeyondawareness or you can go to my website for more information at dianapastoracarson.com. My books include Beyond Awareness, Bringing Disability into Diversity Work in K-12 Schools and Communities, as well as my children's book, Ed Roberts, Champion of Disability Rights. They can both be found on Amazon. For your free Beyond Awareness resource called The Five Keys to Going Beyond Awareness, simply go to gobeyondawareness.com slash keys. This podcast transcription and podcast guest information can be found in the show notes. Intro and outro music has been provided courtesy of Emmanuel Castro. Thank you again for joining me. Be well, be a lifelong learner, and let's be inclusive. See you next time. Manos arriba.